Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is part one of our interview with former Buccaneer pilot, Tom Eels. In this episode, Tom chats about what it was like to fly and handle the aircraft, living and operating from a carrier, what weapons load the Buccaneer could carry, and much more. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. So Tom, when did you first become interested in aviation? When I was about uh, six or seven years old, because my father was an RAF officer. He was the station commander at RAF Thorny Island in Sussex, uh, home to two squadrons of Meteor F4s, cutting edge technology yeah. of the time. And uh, we lived right on the edge of the airfield, jet fighters all over the place. I never wanted to do anything else other than fly them. So what uh, year did you join the RAF? And can you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on? I joined the RAF in 1960 as a flight cadet at the Royal Air Force College Cranwell. It was a three-year course in those days and uh, for the first year there was no formal flying training at all. But you did get a little bit of air experience flying in the chipmunk uh -huh. once a week. And if you were lucky and had a flying instructor with you, you could sit in the front and be taught actually how to fly. So I was lucky. I managed to get flying instructors. And I went solo in the chipmunk off the grass airfield at Cranwell in my first year uh, after about uh, seven and a half hours training. Very Second good. and third years uh, we trained on the jet provost uh, up to wing standard, the Mark III and the Mark IV. So at the end of the three years not only did we get our wings but we also got a degree from an external university. Oh wow. So that was quite a hard challenge to I, do both. I can imagine. So what was your first frontline aircraft? First frontline aircraft was actually the Canberra, the B-8, the one with the little bubble canopy, based in Germany in the nuclear strike and conventional ground attack role, armed with four 200mm cannon, 1,000 pound bombs and a great big American-based nuclear weapon. <laughs> so what was the Canberra like to fly? Canberra was very nice, it's a very straightforward aeroplane, very simple, no powered flying controls, nothing like that. Uh, very honest aeroplane, the only time it could bite you was if you got too slow with too much power on in asymmetric flight and then you lost control, aeroplane would roll over and that was probably the end. <laughs> yeah. So how long did you spend on the Canberra? I spent nearly two years in Canberra in and, Germany. And did you enjoy that tour? I enjoyed it up to a point. Uh, we were lucky in that we were deployed out to Singapore to the Far East uh, where we lived for five months under canvas at a remote airfield in Malaya. Uh, bolstering up Far East Air Force during the Indonesian confrontation. That was tremendous. That was purely in the conventional ground attack role and that was fantastic fun. Uh, when I got back it was a little bit boring compared to what it had <laughs> been. Yeah. Uh, and that's when I made the change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously we're here to talk about the, your time on the Buccaneer with the Royal Navy. Tell us how this uh, exchange came about. Uh, a signal came round the squadrons one day in 19, late 1965 uh, saying looking for volunteers to go and fly with the Royal Navy on loan to the Royal Navy. Uh, Buccaneer or Sea Vixen. Naturally, being a strike pilot, I was a Buccaneer man. Yeah. So in spite of everybody on the squadron thinking I was completely mad, <laughs> I applied to 
to go to the Navy and my application was accepted. Wow. So what were your first thoughts of the Buccaneer? Arriving on the Buccaneer up at Lossiemouth, 1966, uh, it was streets ahead of the Canberra. In fact, it was streets ahead of anything the Royal Air Force had at the time. Yeah. Uh, fantastic aeroplane, uh, amazing design, very big aeroplane, nearly as big as a Canberra, but to operate from an aircraft carrier. Uh, the course itself, actually flying the aeroplane, was fairly straightforward because I'd got six, seven hundred hours of frontline flying already. The big challenge, of course, was how to get it to land on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> and of course, the handling technique was totally different uh, to the handling technique, which I had spent nearly 800 hours now learning how to fly. The old technique is to point the aeroplane with the control column at where you want it to land on the runway and adjust its speed with the power. That does not work on an <laughs> aircraft carrier. It's the other way around. You have to adjust the speed with the control column so that you hold a nice, constant, steady speed and you adjust the glide slope with your left hand on the throttles. And that gets you into the right place at the right speed. Yeah. But that took a little bit of learning. However, once we mastered that, didn't have a further problem. <laughs> so let's just go back a bit. So uh, what was the ground training like coming from the Canberra? Was it very similar? Very similar. There was a simulator for the Buccaneer, but only a simulator for the Mark I version of the Buccaneer. It was a very primitive simulator, no visual, uh, fixed base. It was good for learning the procedures, how to make the aeroplane work properly, how to deal with the emergencies. But as far as the handling was concerned, forget it. It didn't handle at all. Yeah. Uh, there was no dual control version of the Buccaneer, uh, so there was no chance of getting airborne and uh, being shown how to fly the aeroplane by a qualified flying instructor. Uh, the only dual control aeroplane that we used was the Hunter, which had the Buccaneer instrumentation in the left-hand seat, so you could practice instrument flying, but the handling of the Hunter was completely different to the Buccaneer. Mm -hmm. So your first ever flight in a Buccaneer was your first solo, wow, with a yeah. flying instructor in the back with no controls and minimal instrumentation. And all he had was his gift of the gab to tell you what to do, hopefully successfully. And the, the learning curve was very steep, as mm. you can imagine. Yeah. So where were you based for your ground training? We did it all at Lossiemouth. The uh, operational conversion unit or operational flying squadron, 736 Naval Air Squadron, was based up at Lossiemouth. It was equipped with a mixture of mainly Mark I Buccaneers in 1966. Uh, because the Mark I was still in frontline service on HMS Eagle uh, and a, a scattering, a few Mark II Buccaneers, which were, of course, rolling off the production line at that time. The Mark I, interestingly, the Mark I was a nicer aeroplane to fly in some respects, oh, really? the Mark II. Uh, it, it handled better and it would, actually, it would actually go faster because of the small air intakes, but the engines were terrible. It, it was underpowered. Uh, it was a major problem operating off ships because yeah. there just wasn't enough thrust. Uh, the Jaron Junior engines were terribly unreliable and once you lost one, really, you were going nowhere in a Mark I. <laughs> the Mark II with the Spey was fantastic, uh, but it did handle differently because of the big air intakes, different centre of gravity. Uh, it was just a, it was a lovely aeroplane to fly, but it wasn't quite as sweet, if you like, as the Mark I yeah. when, you were going at, when you were going at normal operating speeds. So just on that, what are the main differences between the Mark I and Mark II? Uh, the Mark II's main differences were spay turbofans instead of Jaron Jr. Jaron Jr. produced about 7,000 pounds-ish of thrust without boundary layer control removed. Mm -hmm. 
Spey produced 11,500 pounds of thrust without boundary layer control. So huge difference in thrust available. Uh, the Mark II had an improved electrical system, an AC system, uh, which was much better than the Mark uh, I's. And there were other minor refinements to the weapon system, but really not a great deal of difference. Okay. Uh, the Buccaneer II had extended wingtips uh, as compared to the Mark I, and that caused a few problems in the years ahead, which nobody knew about. <laughs> so essentially, was this uh, the same engine in the Phantom, the Spear? Was that, was that yes, correct? essentially yeah, the same engine, but unreheated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, can you remember your first trip in a Buccaneer, your first flight? Yes. Can you explain what that was like, Tom? Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so, can you tell us, uh, talk us through some of your initial training? What kind of flying would you do? Uh, was it just basics, or would you start with weapons straight away? Uh, it followed a typical operational conversion unit. Learn to fly the aeroplane, learn to navigate the aeroplane with your navigator in the back, or observer in Royal Navy firms. Uh, formation, a little bit of close formation, a little bit of tactical formation. We'd done all that before, so it's just what it was like in a Buccaneer. Uh, quite a lot of weapon system work on Tain and Rosati ranges, so that you knew how the weapon system worked. Then a few uh, operational profiles, perhaps bounced by the squadron's hunter, something like that. Mm -hmm. The big, big difference, though, was uh, two events. Uh, one was going down to the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Bedford to be catapulted off the static steam catapult that was fitted there. The Buccaneer launch from a catapult was hands-off. You did not put your hands on the controls. You set the tailplane angle to give you uh, a little bit of a climb. The aircraft was tensioned up in the flying attitude with the nose wheel off the deck. Uh, you wound the aeroplane up to full power, checked that everything was uh, satisfactory. You'd put your hand up in the cockpit to indicate that you were happy to accept the launch. And then you sat with your hand like that on your knee, left hand fully braced to hold the throttle open, head back on the ejection seat, the uh, flight deck officer would drop the green flag, two or three seconds later, off you went. Nought to about 130 knots in 140 feet. Oh. Fairly impressive acceleration. Was that, did that feel unnatural, not being able to take control of the control column? It felt strange, but it worked. <laughs> yeah. It worked very well. As soon as the aircraft was airborne and slowly accelerating away, you gently took control and cleaned the aircraft up once it was going at a reasonable speed. The reason for that was that the aeroplane was very sensitive in pitch. Right. And if you over-rotated the aeroplane off the catapult at a really low indicated airspeed, you were going to stall, spin, crash, yeah. die. Mm -hmm. uh, so catapult launch, something completely new. And then, of course, getting back on the ship. Uh, we were, during my course, HMS Hermes arrived in the Moray Firth. And so off we went to um, do deck landing practice. No hook-ons, wasn't room for us on board. Yeah. So just uh, touch and goes off the ship. Uh, the day started badly for the squadron because uh, a chap in a Mark I Buccaneer suffered an engine failure turning around finals and they ejected. So they came back by helicopter rather than by Buccaneer. Uh, but we did two or three sessions of deck landing practice on Hermes and that effectively was that. Mm. So yeah, was it, was it quite uh, tough getting through that? Uh, I mean, I'm guessing, did you have like three landings? You had to make two out of three or was it how strict? You had to get to the point where uh, Commander Air on board would have said to you, okay, hook down. Right. And that was a couple of sorties worth, probably. 
uh, before you got that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a skill that you had to keep, uh, keep current. We could practice to a degree on the airfield where there was a runway uh, painted like the flight deck and a projector site on the side of the runway, but it was completely different. You had 9,000 feet of runway, 200 feet wide, which never moved. Uh, it just didn't look the same as a carrier. When you saw a carrier for the first time from the what they call the low weight, it looked about the size of your thumbnail and you thought, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to get back onto that. But of course you had to do it. Course, it was yeah. essential. Yeah. So can you remember your first landing on the carrier? What was that like? Was it terrible? Uh, my first landing was on Victorious because by now I've joined the squadron, which is based in Singapore. Uh, the Christmas New Year period, 1966 to 67, was spent by us bachelors in Singapore, so we'll draw a veil over that activity. <laughs> but then we go, the ship goes back out to sea and uh, we, we have to go and join it. And uh, we all flew out, uh, but as luck would have it, or not have it, uh, the ship found itself in the one area of strong winds with a pitching deck and uh, we did a little bit of, we had a few goes, but nobody got on board, not even the experienced boys. So we all went back with our tails between our legs to Changi to wait for the next day. Next day, lovely day, calm sea, no snags. Having been told to put my hook down, we just did another approach, landing, tremendous deceleration. As soon as you stop, the ground crew are out in front of you, uh, indicating fold the wings, hook up, taxi off the landing area as quick as you can. We were briefed, if they taxi you over the side, that's their fault, it's not yours. <laughs> yeah. uh, taxied into the parking area thinking, I've done it. Now normally when you, when you land and you shut down on an airfield, uh, the world has sort of stopped moving in relative to you. You climb out of your aeroplane and everything's nice and still. I'll never forget climbing out of my aeroplane, coming down the ladder, taking my helmet off, by now, the ship is turning out of wind, so the horizon is going past, if you can imagine. <laughs> and it was so disorientating, I had to clutch hold of the aircraft ladder to stop falling over. Wow. So, talking about uh, being uh, on the Navy, on the ships, uh, what was life like in general? Uh, living conditions, you know? All life on board, HMS Victorious was a World War II aircraft carrier that had the chop, top, chop, the top chopped off and a new top put on. So down below, underneath number one deck, She's pure World War II. Uh, the wardroom itself was reasonably comfortable. There was a bar and easy chairs where you could sit and read the magazines, newspapers. Remember, this was a time when there was no internet, uh, no mobile phones, nothing like that. One's sole communication with the outside world were airmail letters, which would arrive occasionally. Um, life was quite pleasant there. Uh, my cabin was on six deck, I remember it well, 6Q6. It was about the size of a large wardrobe. It had one bunk, uh, a small bookcase, uh, one shelf to put a few books on, and that was about it. Uh, but we were all bachelors, we didn't worry too much. Uh, if we were flying, of course, we were busy during the day. Uh, if the ship was what we call on passage, uh, yes, there was not a great deal to do, but um, we used to play deck games, um, go to lectures, uh, ground, ground training activities, that sort of thing. Uh, and most of the time spent on passage was quite reasonable, quite honestly. Was there much banter between the RAF guys, like yourself and the Navy guys? Oh uh, yes, we used to banter the Navy, they used to banter us. We used to call the, the deck the floor, the, the deck head the ceiling, the round things 
the windows and that used to get them quite excited I've heard of that before, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah by and large the relationship between the junior officers of which we we're all uh, part of the, the team was was very good because after all we we're all doing the same thing together we we're all facing the same challenges the same dangers yeah. so um, uh, there was no great uh, inter-service friction at that level. Yeah. So let's talk about a, bit, a bit about the Buccaneer. How did the aircraft handle? How did the aircraft handle? Well, at low speed, it was quite a difficult aeroplane to fly. It, um, it needed a lot of high-lift devices to not only allow it to get launched from the carrier, but also to recover to the ship. So the whole of the rear of the wing, the ailerons, the main plane flaps would all droop down. Uh, high pressure air would be blown from the engines along the leading edge of the wing and over the ailerons and tail and uh, main plane flap. This high pressure air was also blown over the underneath of the tailplane to increase the lift. So once you'd done all that, the aeroplane was quite heavy to handle in the circuit and quite, quite demanding to handle in the circuit. Once you'd cleaned it up, got all the flap and ailerons cleaned up, all the boundary layer control off, and you're operating in your normal speed range between sort of 400 to 550 knots. It was a delight to fly. Be beautifully balanced. Uh, you could really fly it low and fast. Uh, one of the great things we used to demonstrate to new navigators was to set the aeroplane up at 550 knots at about 50 feet over the sea and say, look, hands off. <laughs> Must have scared them a bit. <laughs> Just to keep them on the mark. On the mark. But no, it was a lovely aeroplane in that respect. Uh, now, unsurprisingly, its its handling was a little bit deteriorated a bit when you got to real high altitude. But then we didn't go to high altitude a great deal. Mm -hmm. So overall, it was well designed for the job that it did. Mm -hmm. So just a bit of stats here, what was the, the top speed the Buccaneer could go to? The, the, the top speed was uh, 580 knots or Mark 0.95. Uh, it could go supersonic, but the company said, don't do that because the tailplane might fall off. Don't want that, No. <laughs> so how did you find working with the Navigator and what was the Navigator's role um, on the Buccaneer? Well, no problem at all, really, because remember, I'd come from a Canberra where you had a Navigator anyway. Uh, the big difference in the Buccaneer was that not only did the Navigator have a decent ejection seat, just like yours, uh, he could also see out because he lived under the, a nice uh, perspect canopy. Uh, he had full control of the onboard radar. He also had the navigation kit, the Doppler, Jeep, a Doppler system called Blue Jacket. He also had most of the weapon selection switches, so okay. he would select which pylon or which weapon station the bomb would come off from, uh, and the fusing uh, systems. You in the front had the type of attack you were going to do, uh, dive attack, level retard attack, radar locked on attack, whatever. So it was very much a, a crew cooperation between the two of you. Obviously he was responsible for the navigation. Uh, by and large most of our overland navigation was traditional map and stopwatch stuff yeah. because the, the Doppler uh, blue jacket wasn't particularly good uh, and the radar was optimized for over the water operations where it would pick up it would pick up big radar discrete targets like ships it wasn't a, a terrain following type radar for overland navigation yeah so uh, what kind of munitions could the buccaneer carry at this time in those early days we didn't have any precision guided munitions like you see today yeah. 
we just carried conventional 1,000 pound bombs, uh, ballistic. Uh, we didn't even have retard tails when uh, oh, I really? first joined 801 Squadron. Uh, so ballistic bombs, uh, two-inch rocket projectiles, which lived in a, in a canister. Uh, you could carry four canisters of rockets, one on each of the wing pylons, and uh, that uh, amounted to 144 total rockets. Uh, so rocket projectiles, conventional bombs, uh, the Red Beard British tactical nuclear weapon, which entirely filled the bomb door. It was really? a monstrous piece of kit. Wow. Uh, and uh, unique to the Navy, the uh, Bullpup missile, which was a, an American uh, air-to-surface missile, pretty primitive by today's standard, uh, guided by what was called command-to-line-of-sight guidance, which meant that once you launched it, uh, the pilot had a little control uh, input, uh, a little control column with a little four-way switch on the top, and uh, he had to keep the buccaneer pointing at the target that he wanted to hit. And there was a flare at the back of the missile. And you either went up, down, left or right with a little switch. And that sent a radio command to the missile to do whatever it needed to do. But it was quite a tricky business, not only flying your airplane, but also guiding this weapon onto the target. It was fairly primitive. It gave you a sort of standoff range of about four miles okay. there, there or thereabouts yeah. uh, and if you got it right yes you could hit the target but the big problem with the bullpup was that every time you gave it a command input the, fl the control surfaces on the missile went to full deflection ah. uh, and so that was called the bang bang system and it tended to make the missile really quite difficult to control especially as it started to decelerate when the motor burnt out really yeah <laughs> We did have a primitive simulator on board, which was a bit like a sort of fairground toy, really. Big screen, uh, you press a button, a little light would come on on the screen, you had a little controller, and the, the little light was sort of mimicking what the missile was going to do, and so you had to keep the light in the ah. middle of the screen the whole time. We could carry four bullpups, and I did fire off quite a few bullpups. And once you got the hang of it, 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 it could be quite accurate, but I think it was very limited. Yeah. really and what it was able to do yeah i think the most uh, interesting event was i I'd, I'd been sent off to fire off some a bullpup and uh, the weather on where we were going to fire it was unsuitable so i come back to the ship uh, with this bullpup unfired that's still on the uh, starboard inner pylon uh, i landed on board and much to my astonishment after coming to a grinding halt in the wires there's this huge plume of water uh, in the water in front of the ship and a a pretty brisk radio command over the over the radio from the bridge saying pilot of 230 to the to flyco at the rush <laughs> and i thought oh I don't know. what's all this about when i got out of the airplane there was no bullpup on it any longer so i went up to see flyco who was uh, not impressed because he said he accused me of not making my switches safe if you can imagine what i mean and inadvertently pressing the trigger on landing and firing off the missile well every landing was filmed uh, so we sat there waiting uh, the outcome of this me in some considerable trepidation and uh, of course it took time for the film to be developed eventually the films run through brilliant no problem there's no smoke plume behind the missile. It literally just broke off the pylon, fell on the deck, bounced over everything, and landed in the sea ahead. Really? And I've still got some photographs in my photograph album. Oh, wow. 
So did you ever work with any other nations? Yes, we used to work occasionally out in the Far East with the United States Navy. It was the era of the Vietnam War, so they always had about two or three aircraft carriers out there. They had a huge naval base facility at a place called Subic Bay in the Philippines. Uh, fantastic uh, facility where you could bring a carrier alongside, lift aircraft off the ship by crane onto the dockside, start it up and taxi it to the airfield. Uh, so we used to do a little bit of work with the with the Americans. We used to practice air to air refueling from their from their aircraft occasionally, and one or two people actually went on board, landed on, and were launched off an American carrier. I didn't actually do that. Mm -hmm. I was too junior to be allowed to do that. <laughs> Did you ever practice air DACT in the Buccaneer? DACT. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, we had a resident Civics and squadron on board, and yeah, they tried to bounce us every now and again, and. Yeah. Uh, we did. I mean, the Buccaneer could look after itself at low level. We, in those days, had no form of self-defense weapon. Uh, but interestingly, the scimitar, which the Buccaneer had replaced, did have the AIM-9B Sidewinder. Oh, right. Okay. And the Navy hadn't got rid of their stocks of AIM-9B Sidewinders. So not long after we got back to the UK in the summer of 1967, our aircraft had a small modification and we were able to carry a single sidewinder, which of course changed the odds very much in our favour. Uh, fighter aircraft had to be now a little bit more careful about ending up in front of us. 